Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few. Hopefully, for some of you listeners, you've gone from dream just out of reach to in fingertip touch, uh, almost maybe even grasped it. Our guest today, I know people are going to be super engaged with. Why do I know that? Because the question our guest today answers is a question I get a lot of the time, which is, how did you become a keynote speaker? How do you turn what you do into your life into something that actually generates an income? And it's not easy, is the bottom line, and it takes time. Once you kind of understand the methodology on the way to get there, it becomes pretty exciting. So with no further ado, I'm going to introduce him now. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without goals are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Peter Winnick, thank you so much for being on The Few today and helping those of us that have got some great ideas turn them into reality, into a commercially viable idea. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I've got a quick question for you, Peter. Very simply, what's a thought leader? <laughs> so I love that you asked that question because people banter this word around. And you know, the word that used to make me cringe was guru. Remember when everyone was a guru? Oh, yeah. I've been in the thought leadership space since before it was borderline cringeworthy term, which bothers me. <laughs> before it was everyone. Yeah. But what I believe a thought leader is, I think there's two components to that answer. Number one is thought. Okay. So what you are doing is whether it's coming from academia, whether it's coming from your business experience, whether it's coming from your life experience, there's something thoughtful about what you're doing, about what you have to say, about your processes, your methodologies, your frameworks, your beliefs. What is the grounded foundation of your work? Well, there's got to be some thought there. The second piece is the leadership piece, which is really the critical component, which is, do you have the courage to, whether it's standing on the, you know, the proverbial shoulders of giants or whatever, to take the conversation to the next level, maybe in a slightly different way, not being controversial for the sake of shock value, but do you have the courage to add to the conversation in a way that's deliberate and thoughtful and all that? So you add the two together, thought leadership. Because that's the reality. It's very easy to be a deep thinker and have all the big ideas and stay in the crowd. When you lift up and start to open yourself to challenge and for people to look at those ideas and maybe have a, an alternate perspective, yeah, that's, that's where the courage comes in. What is it about somebody that turns their thoughts and thoughts are, you know, a dime a dozen. It's pretty easy to sit there and get lost, lost in your thoughts, but actually convert them into something that's structured, that's meaningful, that's impactful. And I guess give them a fixed narrative in which to bring a lot of their conversations back, because that's one of your core philosophies, right? You've got to have the core idea. You've got to have something. So I would say at the risk of sounding like a consultant, it depends, right? So there's a whole universe of what I would call leadertainment which is primarily keynote speaking, right? So one way to answer that question is how do I take what I know and put it on stage in 30, 45 minutes in an engaging way, an insightful way, in a way that people want to listen to? That goes back to storytelling. That goes back to your executive presence. That goes back to visuals and music and all, you know, all these other things. The way I'd prefer to answer that question is how do you make what you have replicatable and teachable? How do you break it down to the Lego piece level, to the atomic level? 
And the way to do that is to really make sure that what you say is what you say is so is so, right? So if I say to you, uh, uh, you know, hey, boo, if I, you know, if you, uh, pat your head on the three, you know, on the, pat yourself on the head three times and drink chicken soup. You're going to be more resilient. It's just not so. So we have to know that the models and the methods and the frameworks are actually so. So there's science underneath this. You could, you, you know, you could validate an assessment. You could prove it through research. And I think the difference between the two, the leadertainment piece and the teaching piece, is charisma is going to get you really far on the stage, right? Nobody wants to see uh, an actuary read a report and call that a keynote, but (laughs) doesn't mean it's replicatable and teachable. Maybe, maybe not. It's a different skill set, And I think that's really where the rubber meets the road as it relates to scale and leverage. Do you have a, like a fixed idea or is there a fairly routine set of, of avenues in which you can deliver your intellectual property and thoughts in a way that can be monetized or is there, you still have a bit of a structure, right? Yeah. 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 So the, Structure or how do you get it out there is really a tactical question. I prefer to start at the strategic, right? So should I be on TikTok? Should I write a book? Should I write an article? Blah, blah, blah. Those are all tactical questions that in the absence of a solid viable strategy, you're never going to be able to answer optimally. You might get it okay, but it's not the optimal way to answer that question. So to me, the way you get there is the first thing you need to do is have a strategy. And in my experience, most thought leaders, whether current or aspiring thought leaders either don't have one, have an antiquated one or broken one. So you've got to spend the time and energy to develop a strategy, which speaks to who am I serving, right? Because who you're serving drives a lot of your tactical answers. Where do they consume content? How do they prefer to consume it? Where do they add the most value to it, right? How do I sell it? The reality is in my work, 70, 80%, maybe more of the energy that we put in with clients is really more on the sales, marketing, productization, distribution side, people can't come to us and say, hey, I don't have an idea, make me a thought leader. Sorry, I can't do that, right? You could have a kernel of an idea or an incredibly evolved, developed idea. We can kick butt and get it to market, productize it, make it consistent, get it out there, et cetera. But again, that's a function of strategy. You talk about the Gartner hype cycle, and it's actually a slide I use on a lot of my presentations around, we don't have an ideas problem, we've got an execution of ideas problem. And it's interesting that that model is the same as the failed startup business model. It's the same as the product launch model. Everyone gets excited by the big idea and the start of the adventure. But once you're in the jungle and you're starting to chop down the vines and the trees, although it gets a little bit, and I've always called it the trough of despair before the slope of enlightenment. But in, in the context of thought leaders, what does that look like? What does the hype cycle look like for them? What does the hype cycle look like for them? I think it's really an emerging thought leader. Yeah. So I think for an emerging thought leader, the quickest, the trick is to emerge, meaning to, you know, academics, for example, speaking in generalities, I know that tend to be on one side of the continuum where they want to get something right to the 17th decimal point before they show it to their spouse. <laughs> That's just how it's wired. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in that world, it's about perfection and it's about not having your peers and colleagues globally beat you up and punching a hole in it. I think the opposite is true for thought leaders and like, okay, we are all horrible judges of what is good and what is bad in terms of our ideas, right? There are times where I've got what I think is the most brilliant idea and I put it out there and it's like, you know, crickets. There are other times where I think I'm embarrassed to hit send or post or whatever, because I think, oh my God, do I even want my name associated with that? It's a horrible, stupid thing. And that's the thing that blows up. So I think number one, separate the process by which you decide what a good idea is and take yourself out of that equation. 
this is where platforms like LinkedIn and everything else are the greatest tools ever invented because we can come out out there really quickly with the kernel of an idea. A little, you know, you don't have to spend six months on this thing. Put it out there and go, is this resonating? And put it out there to those that you think it would value, you know, would assign a value to it the most. And listen and iterate and listen and iterate and get your ego out of the way and say, all right, Peter, I'm fine to say, geez, the thing that I thought was a great idea, it's crap, out, garbage, next. As to, to your point, the shortage of ideas is never the problem. If the shortage of ideas is a problem, get a job and do something else. This isn't the space for you. And you talk about the three-legged stool. Is that a, a concept which is around turning thoughts and the chaos of ideas into some sort of structure? What are you trying to achieve there when we talk about that for a thought leader? Well, once there is confirmation or confidence that what you have has a market, now the question is, how do you get it to the market? There's lots of different ways to get ideas to market, some for money and some not for money. So you got to figure out also sort of where is that paywall for you? And a thing that I totally disagree with is a lot of people you know, stay in uh, sort of stealth mode. Oh, I can't tell you all my good ideas because if I told you, you'd steal them from me. No, that's not true. There are people that won't hire you, that, that won't buy your book, that won't buy your tools, whatever. They were never clients. And you have to think of that as a small subset of the potential market. Now, if the only market for your stuff is free, that's a problem. But I think that's a marketing problem, not a problem that speaks to the quality or lack thereof of the idea. When people sell and inevitably as an entrepreneur end up in a model of constantly driving sales because that's what you need to put a roof over your head, right? Yeah. When you look at a thought leader, a lot of them are pathologically terrified of sales yeah. or ever having a conversation about monetizing their thought. So what makes the difference? What's the difference between someone that manages to break through that? Like in your experience, you've worked with a lot of thought leaders. You've got a lot of books to market. Yeah. What are some of the attributes or belief structures that you've got to adapt to be able to get good at, let's call it inverted commas, sales. So great conversation. I think maybe single digits of thought leaders, five, seven, eight percent, whatever, happen to be good at sales and marketing. That was their career. That's what they did. They were a CMO to big company, whatever, 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 right? And it's just natural for them. And that's what they do. Now, for the other 95%, it's not. And they probably didn't get into the business side of thought leadership to become salesperson of the year at their company. So the question becomes, what needs to be marketed and what needs to be sold? Those two terms are not synonyms. They're very, very different things. The next question on top of that is who doesn't need to be you. And my argument would be, if you have, as the thought leader are always the head of sales talking to the client, the only one that will win is the client. Either you're gonna reduce the price, give them more stuff, not, it's, it's uncomfortable. Like imagine, you know, if you went to the doctor and as the doctor's telling you the surgery they need, they're saying, oh, by the way, and there's two ways I can do this. It's, you know, $20,000 to retach your retina, or there's a better way that's 25,000. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> that would just be weird, right? But that's in essence, the awkwardness on both sides that happens. So I think the smart thought leaders or the ones that are more proficient in this, when it comes to sales, they've figured out how to have others support them in that process. And even if they're good at it, to feign sort of naivete, oh, I don't, I don't dirty my hands with dollars. It's the old, whenever you go to buy a car, you're never dealing with one person, are you? You're dealing with the car salesman and the manager in the back room, he has to check whether he can adjust the price. And I think that's just the nature of sales. But again, 
having interviewed a lot of thought leaders and seeing the difference between the very commercially successful ones and the ones that seem to struggle all the time, there's not a lot of difference between the value of their ideas. It's just the value they attach to their idea. You're totally right, Boo. So in most other businesses and most other markets, if there was one product that was $50,000 and one that was $5,000, and I'm not going to tell you what the industry is, we would probably agree that the $50,000 one has more features, is a higher quality, is scarcer, is more rare, is more powerful, whatever, whatever. The reality is in the keynote world, the dollars don't necessarily assign to the quality of the keynoter. It could be the brand they built, the reputation they have, the scarce they built, whatever. I've seen $5,000 keynoters that are better than some, you know, it's just weird. It's just a nuance or an oddity or a quirk in the marketplace. With regard to having someone that kind of helps you out as a thought leader, when you start as a human being in the world of social media and presence, you have zero followers, yeah? Mm -hmm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have, I wouldn't call an influencer a thought leader, but you have people that have millions and millions of followers. Now, often some of that, the high, the grabby, high volume, large audience type of content isn't really very thought leaderish. In fact, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. How would you advise someone that had good ideas, was probably doing okay, to kind of leverage some of the tools that are available now for marketing in order to lift their audience? I think you have to be really, really cautious about getting sucked into the world of vanity metrics as it relates to social media. So Drawing a conclusion that says so-and-so has a million followers, therefore, they're really influential. Well, in a certain space, in a certain sphere with certain industries or products or whatever, that's probably absolutely so. But the reality is, as a thought leader, do you even know the size of your marketplace, right? You know, if you're only trying to influence CIOs at Fortune 1000 companies, by definition, your potential market is 1000, right? So I was talking to a very well-known author had five New York Times bestselling books. And he said, you know, I've sold a lot of books, five copies of five of my different books, each made me between a million and three. I just don't know which five they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So that's part of yeah. it. Too. So is it important to have the right following? Yes. The gross number isn't actually the right one. I would want to know sort of related to your avatars, who you're trying to connect with. Are you getting those followers? You know, are you getting the right people to follow you? And more importantly, what do we really want them to do? Because the size of our audience is an ego play, right? I have a podcast. I've done 550 episodes. We get about 5,000 downloads a month, which is okay in the podcasting world, not rocket science. I've never sold a nickel in advertising, but I can directly attribute literally millions of dollars to the show, either people that have reached out to us because they've listened to an episode or someone that wanted to be a guest or, or, or. There's three or four different categories there. So people look at our stuff and say, well, there's no advertising, not making any money. That's not the model that we use there. We're using that to build the brand, to develop relationships, et cetera, et cetera. You made a great point there, which is the ego attached to audience. And <laughs> I think a lot of thought leaders think, hey, oh, I was great in manufacturing, got these processes, the rest of the world would benefit from this. And their idea is to take their manufacturing experience and make it generic. And every now and again, someone does. But by and large, you know, it, it is about them, do you think, to just start with that niche and then kind of kind of see what happens. I think everyone falls into that trap a little bit to say everything I do and everything I say has appeal to everybody. 
Well, and that's, that's actually the worst thing you could do, right? So when I'm talking to a potential client and we talk about their work and their goals and said, okay, you know, I'll ask them, who do you think could benefit the most from this? Oh, this would work for everybody. And I'll say, great. Assuming you don't have the marketing budget of a Coca-Cola or a UPS, that's not the right answer. I'd rather someone tell me with the highest level of specificity, this works really well for family businesses, second generation in a family business in manufacturing in the Midwest doing between 50 and 150 million bucks. I got it now. Now I know exactly who that's going to work for. And I can spend my time and energy and effort and dollars wisely focusing on that population, not 90% of the world that couldn't care less about who I am and what I do. Yeah, absolutely right. So I've got three groups of three questions for you. Okay, the first question. Math isn't that great, but that's a total of nine questions. That is nine questions. The, the context isn't too different between them. So the first question is in the context of somebody that believes they have some great ideas and they could be a thought leader. In the first year of, of them emerging, what would be the three things they should focus on the most? Oh, that's a good question. I think the three things would be locking down their thought leadership because early thought leaders tend to, you know, if you talk to them and three weeks later, you talk to them again and three weeks again, it's different. Lock and load, lock and load, right? You can't be all things to all people. I think number two would be an understanding of your market. And then the third would be, how do you initially get those ideas out to representative subsets of your market for them to make the decision that you deserve to be a thought leader? Oh, and by the way, never, ever, 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 ever call yourself a thought leader. Yeah. <laughs> when you do that, that just signals arrogance and naivete and just please don't yeah. do that. So is that always a book in terms of how you get your thought out, out there? No, absolutely not. I mean, books would be like, you know, someone's 40 pounds overweight and the doc says you should start working out and they go, I'm going to run the marathon this weekend because it's in town. That's not going to be a good outcome. Books, there's reasons to write book, there's purpose to write a book, but a book's a heavy lift. It takes a lot of time, takes a lot of money, takes a lot of energy. For very, very few, right out of the gate is the book the answer. Now, an asterisk to that might be, well, someone with a lot of notoriety, former CEO of a Fortune 1000, or they've already got an audience or whatever, whatever. But for most, that's not the way you want to start the process. All right. The next series of three questions is you are a thought leader. You've had one book and all of a sudden people aren't as interested in your idea as they were before. And you're finding yourself struggling to find relevance. What do you do to reinvigorate your brand? Well, I'm going to not answer the question the way you said it. So I'm going to take book as proxy for a body of thought leadership, if that's okay. Uh -huh. Right. So sometimes there's a shelf life no pun intended, where things go in cycles. So for example, before the pandemic, I was talking and potentially working with someone that was writing a book on the power of remote work. The book was released like Q1 of 2020. Holy cow, how lucky was that person, right? So early on in the pandemic, how we work remotely and work, blah, 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 blah like that was a big thing. Not so big now, why? We figured it out. Psychological safety was not something we were talking about for the most part three years ago. It's hot now. So I think you have to think about, is your thought leadership evergreen? And in most cases, it should be. Don't tie it to a moment in time or try to catch a wave or whatever. But there are times where things just, you know, they go out of vogue. Like if you look at some of the, the old school sales literature, breaking through the gatekeeper, that's not valid anymore, right? Or it's far less valid than it might have been 20 years ago or something. Yeah. And what about you're well-established in your career now and you get to the point where you feel like every idea has a thought leader? and that everyone is doing the same thing and that there's 2.5 million speakers on LinkedIn and the market is saturated with thought. What's the hope for 
the wizened thought leader that becomes disenchanted with the wannabes or the folks who really have an idea that's 12 inches wide and half an inch thick rather than... I would say who cares, right? If I'm a thought leader and I love what I do and, it, and it's I'm serving my clients well and it's serving me well and 82 billion other people claim to be in my space, who cares, right? Where I would care is if it started to be damaging to the brand, to the industry, to the whatever. So for example, if you look at change management, change management as a brand, if you will, is a damaged brand now because most people that have gone through some sort of a change management initiative, think about it like a bad burrito that passed. It's been a pretty disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that it's been reborn as other things. Agile's kind of cool now, right? But you know, I wouldn't be bothered if a zillion other people are claiming to be in your space. I think that actually helps you competitively because it's elevating the conversation. More people are talking about it. And when you have real conversations with real clients, you've got the track record and the wannabes don't. And how about your journey, Peter? How did you at some point understand or believe, probably more importantly, that this was your calling? Yeah. So for me, the light bulb went on. It probably should have went on much earlier the beginning of my career 30 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that now, we didn't call it thought leadership. I read a lot of books, read a lot of magazines and stuff. It was called being a nerd. Yeah. That's what it was, <laughs> right? And never once in the, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of books that I read to date, did I look at a book and say, huh, I wonder how Boo makes a living. Like, I like this guy's stuff. What's his business model? Like I bought the book, paid my 20, 30 bucks for the book, liked it, an idea or two out of it, did something with it and whatever, right? Now that's all I do is think about that. Like, hey, how do you make a business out of that? And that epiphany to me came, I was doing a turnaround actually for an Australian company 20 years ago. And that company was really built on a book that gentleman wrote in the late sixties on presentation and communication skills. And I'm like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Built a global business that's still here long after that person's gone. So now I'm like, oh, wait, I've always thought of myself as an entrepreneur and always thought of myself as a nerd. Now it's like, you know, all the entrepreneurial creativity and all that applied to now it's thought leadership sounds sexier than nerd. <laughs> well, nerds have come quite sexy. You know, if you look at TV and pop culture now, it's kind of cool. It's cool to be a nerd. Even fighter pilots now are embracing the nerd rather than the maverick. It's cool to be smart. I think I'd rather a nerdy pilot than a maverick pilot, right? Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't we all? That's why when you're, uh, when you're going into organizations and you're uh, talking about helping their performance, you don't lead with maverick. That's the last thing they want to have in the organization is a room full of those guys. So tell me, Peter, how do you hold the hand of somebody, you know, that's looking to take an idea, have some great thoughts and leverage it? I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, all the good things that happen in the world here. I'm talking the meat and veggies. How do they commercialize these ideas and become a very successful, very wealthy person who also happens to contribute to society? Great. So this is where everybody wants the three hacks to success. You're not going to get them. Sorry. So it's not quite that easy. I'm sure there's some clickbait somewhere that tells you, here's three things to be a million dollar speaker, if only, right? So I think the journey is different. There's some common themes is different for everybody, depending on where your starting point is. So we work with people that are early into the space, moving from a stellar career as an entrepreneur or in corporate. We work with people that have published you know, 20 books. We work with world-class academics, whatever. Depends where they are in the journey. And it depends where the thought leadership is in its journey. It depends on their goals. Do you want to travel 300 days a year? Depends on the competitive landscape. A lot of people that move into the thought leadership space are smart business people, but then I start to ask them a bunch of questions, right? So Boo, if you and I were sitting around and had a couple of cocktails and said, you know what, we're going to open a new pizza restaurant in downtown Charlotte because we think there's a need there. 
the logical questions people would ask us is, well, what's your differentiation? Is it going to be low price, high volume? Is it going to be high price, low volume? Is it going to be a wine bar? Who's your target market? What's your strategic event? Thought leaders don't do that, right? I always ask them, well, who's your competition? Oh, nobody. I have no competition. No, you haven't done your homework. And, and competition doesn't mean Coke versus Pepsi, but who is out in the space doing similar things for similar organizations? And how are you better than, quicker than, cheaper than, faster than, whatever? And how are you going to win? But also, I guess, testing your theories as well, being open to understand that maybe some people that are competitors might have an advantage in that they've read more, have another study that you haven't read. And to be open-minded, I think that that humility, and that, as you would have seen, it's the humble individuals that grind it out, do the small things well, that ultimately thrive up to the top, right? So we, we don't work in the B2C space, but every now and then I'll get somebody that'll talk to me and say, oh, I want to be the next Tony Robbins. I'm going to be the next Tony Robbins, right? And I say, hey, that's great. You know when we'll know? We'll know in 40 years because that's how long he's been in the game. And you want to get there in four weeks, like, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the world we live in, right? Everyone's looking for that instant gratification and preferably with no effort. Oh yeah. That would be good too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Can you just do it for me? Yeah. And then when I'm rich, I'll give you a kickback for all the effort. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah that works. That works well. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. Thoughtleadershipleverage.com is Peter's environment. Where else, Peter, can people sort of find some of your influence? Let's not call it thought leadership and great ideas. Yeah. So very active on LinkedIn, YouTube channel. And then our podcast is a great place for people to get exposed to our ideas. So that's leveraging thought leadership. Awesome. Those links will be in the show notes below. Peter, we've knocked that one out in 30 minutes, which means that you're incredibly succinct to the point and delivered enormous value for our listeners. So I truly appreciate that. I'm very grateful. Or you've had enough of me and you're on to happy hours next or something. Either could be. Just so everyone knows, it is almost five o'clock on a Friday. So yeah, there may be a little bit of that going on. Peter, really, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on the show, mate. Thanks for having me, Bo. Appreciate it. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners, without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.